going to be continuing our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus by looking at the final plague God sent on Pharaoh in Egypt, the death of the firstborn. This event is called the Passover and is one of the defining events in the history of God's people and the final straw for Pharaoh releasing them from slavery. And I'm going to be reading portions of Exodus 11 and 12 if you want to follow along with me. So this is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave, of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take, shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each, to what each, excuse me, what each can eat, you shall make for your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it from, keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat of the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat of any raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike at all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, and sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Over the summer, um, we found this house. We lived about 20 minutes outside of town, and then we found this house that was like really close to campus, and so we decided to move to it. And uh, my wife is a very meticulous person, planning and not wanting uh, moving to be terrible, which it always is terrible, no matter what you do. And so we planned this like great plan for how we were going to move, and she was very organized about what to do first, and everything was set, and it was good to go. Um, we had to go to her brother's wedding. Okay, so we went down for the week, and we came back, and we had it all planned out. We had two more days to pack our stuff, and it was ready to go, and we were going to be great. We were going to have some help. 
Um, when we got in the van to drive back from Florida from this wedding, uh, we were about 20 minutes into the road, and our oldest daughter threw up, and then she threw up 18 more times um, on the way back uh, to Boone, and she had the nastiest stomach bug of all time. And then all five of us had the nastiest stomach bug, literally, of all time. There was a point that there was every possible kind of thing that could come out of your body on the bed and all five of us on the same bed. And it was awful. Um, And so we went from having this beautifully laid plan of, um, you know, packing everything in its right place, people coming to help. To literally, some like some of y'all, and I really appreciate some of y'all really helped us and blessed us. Um, some of y'all packing my underwear in a box and like cleaning out our refrigerator drawers, you know, and like cleaning our toilet and around the toilet. And um, uh, sometimes when you, when you have a plan, something very, very, very small, something you can't even see, can come in and really mess up your whole plan. And as you're reading the book of Exodus, last week, if you were at RUF, we looked at these nine plagues that God sent on Egypt. And you get this narrative of like, okay, God is going against the bad guys, Israel's the good guys, Egypt is the bad guys. And that's really nice, and it makes a lot of sense. But what I want to look at tonight is that this lamb, this little lamb, this small, fairly insignificant animal, shows up in the story and really screws up the whole thing. And makes it so it doesn't fit this nice, neat little category anymore. But instead, uh, the whole thing is turned on its head. And Jesus, who when he comes on the scene in the Gospels, basically when he shows up, this guy, John the Baptist, says, Behold, that's the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. That when Jesus comes into the scene, when Jesus comes into your life, when Jesus comes into your experience, he really breaks down all of your neat little categories for how you want to do things. And throws everything into chaos. He, he messes up every, how we think things should go for us. And so tonight, if you have a handout, you'll see there's a little um, breakdown there. Um, Jesus breaks down our, our categories. And the first thing I want to see is that the, the very presence of this lamb in the story breaks down exclusivism. Okay, Breaks down this idea that we can, we can be exclusive about who Christianity belongs to. Um, I put out a survey a couple weeks ago, and some of you guys answered it. And um, it was basically a survey of, like, what are your objections to or frustrations with the Christian faith? And uh, what was pretty interesting about it was that almost everybody that answered it said, like indicated that they were a Christian person. Um, but then there were some really serious objections and frustrations. And then one of the most common ones, and maybe you might be here tonight, and this is one of your common frustrations, is that Christians are very exclusive. We have, a, we have a tendency to exclude people, to really focus on who is in and who is out. Not only sort of like who's a real Christian, who's not, but who are the good Christians and who are the bad Christians. Um, uh, someone wrote on the survey, they said this, and I, I really resonated with this, and you might too. They said, so many Christians come off as holier than thou. I feel that's a huge problem because that attitude causes the sinners to feel judged and condemned, and it creates this unhealthy divide between the good Christians and the bad ones. And the reason why this is such a common objection is because it happens all the time. Uh, It is very, very common and easy for Christian people especially to say, well, it's only really for a a precious few 
people. And whether you're here tonight and you are a Christian person that tends to be a little judgy and exclusive and judgmental and likes to draw those lines, or if you're here tonight and you're a person that says, yeah, that's the thing that I don't like about the Christian faith and what frustrates me, um, this, this lamb that shows up in this passage really blows up exclusivism. Because if you think about it, look, look in the passage with, with me. Um, if you look down in verse 7, Moses says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know um, that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay? And the other plagues, God had made a clear distinction. When hail fell on Egypt, it didn't fall on Israel. When all people in Egypt's livestock died, the Israelites' livestock did not die. When they busted out in nasty boils that were really painful and disgusting, uh, the Israelites didn't break out in those boils. God made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And it would be really easy at this point if you were reading it to say, okay, like Israel is the cowboy in the white hat, and Egypt is the cowboy in the black hat, and I know who the good guys and who the bad guys are, because that's what we love to do. But to say, really, the world's broken into two kinds of people. I'm this kind of people, and they're the good guys, and those, those, those kind of people, and they are the bad guys. Um, but the more that you walk through this passage, you realize that's not really what's going on. God had been judging Egypt and judging their false gods and saying they're false, I'm the true God. But if you get here to this passage, he says, okay, I'm going to go through, I'm going to kill the firstborn of Egypt. And it's like, okay. That's great. You know, they killed all our firstborn sons. Now they're going to kill them. Great fun. Um, and then you get there. Okay, and I want you to take a, I want you to take a lamb. Okay, and I want, you to, I want you to kill it and I want you to eat it. It's like, okay, cool. Like, it's going to be a party. Like, it's going to be a lamb roasting party, um, which is a little bit morbid, but um, fine. Um, but then you realize, when we get down on, in uh, verse 7, I guess there's two verse 7s. That's a little confusing, but... Down in verse 7 at the beginning of the, of the last paragraph on your page. Then they also take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentils of the house. And God says, look, when I come through, the way I'm going to make a distinction is if your house has the blood of the lamb on the door, I'm going to pass by. And if your house doesn't have the blood of the lamb on the door, your firstborn is going to die. And so really, if you're an Israelite, and you say, yeah, yeah, look, I'm part of God's chosen people. Okay, I'm in the club. But you don't have the blood on your door. You're subject to the judgment. The plague will fall on you no matter your religious heritage, no matter your religious behavior. If you don't have the blood, if the lamb has not been slain and is on your door, the plague is going to fall on you. So when Moses says, look, you're going to know that God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. It's a distinction between the good guys and the bad guys? No. Is the, is the distinction between the, the pure, holy, and innocent people and then the sinners? No. Um, because if God is going to... The point here is, if God is going to send His judgment down, it's going to fall on Israel just as much as it's going to fall on Egypt because they're both guilty. The reason why Israel is spared is not because they're, of their heritage It's not because of their behavior. It's not because they're so upright. It's because God has been gracious to them. And he's provided a way of escape for them. Paul says it in, uh, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans in the New Testament, he's talking about insiders. Some of you guys feel like insiders tonight. 
And some of you guys feel like outside, religious outsiders. And he's talking to a church and he's talking about insiders and outsiders. And this is what he says. He says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The lamb in this passage shows us that there's no such thing as good guys and bad guys. There's such thing as uh, people that God has been gracious to and not, but we're all sinners. Um, it's an unearned gift. So if you're a Christian person and you're here tonight and you say, because you're like, you're like, look, in order to punch my Christian card, I have to say, yeah, you know, it's unearned. I didn't do anything to get it. It's all on Jesus. But if you sit around and you draw, you're, you're very interested in drawing lines between who's in your circle and who's out of your circle. Who gets to be in the church? Who gets to be out of the church? Who's the right kind of person? Who's the wrong kind of person? You say you believe in mercy and you believe in grace, but you don't. Functionally, you do not. And you think, you've, and you've missed it. Um, and there's a thing called spiritual pride and it's bubbling up in you and it's pushing you away from God because the Christian faith is not just for holier than thou people who have figured out how to live their lives, who have navigated around the big sins that some of the people in your dorm or some of the people in your sorority or fraternity or some of the people on your intramural team have bumped into. Uh, the Christian faith is not for um, people that walk confidently in holiness and chastity and purity. Nor is it for people that have gotten sufficient answers to their doubts and now have purged their minds of all doubts. No, the Christian faith, Jesus, the Lamb, is for people that say, I have a debt to God. And I recognize that unless this Lamb stands for me and His blood is for me, the judgment is going to come on me. Um, Because we're all guilty before God. It's the very antithesis of exclusivity. It's the, it's the pride killer. It's a recognition that the ground is totally even at the foot of the cross. So Jesus comes to say to each person in here tonight, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how you stack up. It doesn't matter what your credentials are. Will you take refuge in me or not? Because if you think the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost, as on the doorpost and on the lintel, and the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus, was on, the, was on the post and on the lentil of the cross, uh, the cross. And that breaks down the notion that friendship with God is something that you earn. So the presence of the Lamb breaks down exclusivism, but also the presence of the Lamb breaks down easy believism. Okay? Um, before, I, before I was a Christian person, and my mom is the only person in this room that knew me during that time, and that's part of what's beautiful about family, um, is I can't like pretend in front of my mom that I'm somebody that I'm not, right? Um, but before I was a Christian, especially in high school, one of my main beefs with religious people, and especially with Christian people, was I thought, you know, I, I was like this total like faux intellectual, and I thought I had the answers, I was a very strong person. And um, I said, you know, the problem is with Christians and with religious people is... They just can't face the world as it is. They can't handle it. It's too hard for them. It was very, you know, uh, very prideful place to be. And I, I said, they just need an escape. And Jesus is their escape. They can't deal with, with their own problems or the problems of the world. So they just run to Jesus and they escape all this. And they have these sort of hallmark like, hey, it's going to be fine. God's going to work it out. It's okay. Just trust him. And, but the irony is, when I came into contact with Jesus... And with the Bible, um, suddenly I realized, far from escaping from my junk 
it, it made me like very, very, it was like very honest with me about my problems. It was very honest with me about my crap, and it made me look at it and deal with it. Jesus and the Bible are very, very comfortable with hard things. Um, actually, it feels sometimes like Jesus throws gas on them. Like, you think there's a problem, and Jesus is like, oh, you think, like, you're good if you just don't, you know, actually commit adultery. But I tell you, when you lust after that girl's butt that's bouncing down the hall, um, you've actually committed adultery with her. He throws gas on that fire. Um, and so the Passover narrative breaks down this idea that, 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 that Christianity is this easy believism, that just ignoring the bad stuff. Because if you look at it, and you think about it, this morning I was driving my daughter to school, and I was, I was like, hey, let me tell you about this story. And I was like, you know, and I started walking through, so like all these firstborn children are going to die, but it's like it's cool because then there's a lamb that dies instead, and you put the blood on the door. And I was like, how's that sound to you? And she's like a pastor's kid, right? She's like, good. You know, she's five. She's like, sounds good. It's like, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. Um, it sounds weird. As I said, it's, it's primitive and very archaic. We're talking like people dying and like animals dying and being killed in their blood. And, and I think if you come tonight to RUF and you're like, you know, part of my problem with the whole Christian thing is like this stuff is intense and like gory and like feels really ancient and like raw and that's hard for me. If that's you, I think you're actually getting the message pretty clearly. Then the person that's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this sounds like totally normal and like no big deal. Um, uh, this is a powerful, like the, the fact that this lamb dies and there's blood is a powerful declaration that things are not okay. Um, I'm sure you guys saw Beyonce performing in the Super Bowl. Um, if he didn't, shame on you. Um, <laughs> Uh, maybe and she performed at the at the, at the Super Bowl and um, was dressed, you know, as like uh, sort of invoking the Black Panther Party, and she and she was saying, "Stop shooting us," you know, as a black woman. And then there, uh, Kendrick Lamar performed on the Grammys, and it was amazing and powerful as he came in with other black men in chains in in, in a what looked like a prison cell, and they were changing. It was clearly invoking slavery. That like mass incarceration of black men is, is the new slavery, right? And those were both powerful images that you couldn't look away from saying, there's a problem. You have to deal with it. You have to look at it. Uh, it, 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 it goes like, you have to look at the fact that like in North Carolina alone, 65% of the population is white, but 36% of the people that are incarcerated are white. However, 22% of the population in North Carolina is black, but 55% of the incarcerated population is black. Like, when, when Kendrick gets up and says it, and when Beyonce gets up and says it, they're making a declaration, you've got to look, something's wrong. And this lamb coming and dying in this story is a, narr- is a powerful declaration to us that we can't look away from. That if God is going to pass over your sin, it's going to cost him something. It's not just this easy-peasy, everything's copacetic, it's going to cost him something. And here, I'll show you what I mean. To understand what's going on in this passage, you have to get that firstborn children were completely special in the ancient world. Again, my mom is here. I'm my mom's firstborn and only child, okay? And as she raised me as a single mom, she's a very strong woman. And um, I know how much that means to her for me to be her only son and her firstborn son. And how much um, she cared about, how much of like her sense of pride 
And her sense of accomplishment in the world is tied up in my well-being. You know, it means to me it's powerful. And in the ancient world, the firstborn was everything. They were the person that was going to be the heir. They were the person that was going to make sure that your family's wealth continued. And if you were a, a father and you didn't have an heir, you didn't have a firstborn, you were basically worthless. You were like a, you were like a woman without a husband. And it's a strong theme throughout the Old Testament that God says, because of sin, your firstborn belongs to me. If a reckoning isn't made, if a payment isn't made, your firstborn belongs to me because of your sin. And this is a declaration to Israel that things are not okay. Something has to happen. Israel is guilty as well. Um, And so if Israel's firstborn children are going to to survive and not be judged, a substitution has to happen. And this is what's beautiful about the Christian faith. What's beautiful about the Christian faith is... When you know when you get to a football game and someone's holding up John three sixteen, you know I don't really do that that much anymore. The most famous verse in the Bible, probably, for God so loved the world that He gave what His only Son. The thing that that has the most meaning and value to a person, the thing that everything is hanging on. God gave that why so that whoever believes in Him should not perish. God gives His Son so that. So that we won't perish. God spared the firstborn of Israel, but it was only because of the Lamb. Um, God did not pass over His Son. If you, if you think about God going house to house and passing over and sparing these children, God's house was not passed over. And when the great cry went up in Egypt at the loss of the firstborn, in Israel, as Jesus was on the cross, the cry went up from Him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Judgment fell on God's house. Do do, do you get that? Are are you missing it? Judgment fell on God's house so that it wouldn't fall on yours. And the lamb is a declaration to us that that is serious and costly. And if you're here and you're an animal lover, Jonathan said something about vegans, vegetarians, always welcome. Um, Love vegans and vegetarians because you are committed to to a cause much more than most of us are, besides just maybe Snapchat. Um, if you're an animal lover and you're reading this passage, you might be like, I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm uncomfortable with this animal dying so that these guilty, rando people don't die. And you might be, to be tempted to think, okay, in the, in the ancient world, they devalued animals. They didn't care about animals as much as they do today, but actually you'd be wrong. On the contrary, animals were of, of much more significant back in the day than they are now. Because this is a whole family's wealth tied up in this animal. You know, like when we go to the meat department at Harris Teeter, you know, it's like, okay, there's like chicken thighs and there's ground beef and whether it's a very sterile package, you don't have to see the face of the animal, you know, and kill it and deal with the fact that this is an animal that's losing its life. But for someone in the ancient world, it would have been very obvious to them that a loss is happening. This is an animal that they would have lived with um, and if you're here tonight and you're like, uh, yeah, like, but the lamb is innocent. Like, what has the lamb ever done? This isn't okay. Then you're actually onto it. Like, you're actually onto something that's very right and good. Because the lamb is innocent. The, the lamb has committed no sin. And the fact that it has to be killed shows us the tragedy of how this thing works. Um, it's physically without blemish. And imagine you're that Israelite. And you've killed this animal, this, this one-year-old. I mean, have you ever held a lamb? 
Like a one-year-old baby lamb? This is the gentlest, kindest, most innocent thing that you could possibly imagine. I mean, you watch, we watch videos on YouTube of them like prancing around with our children. Uh, you know, why would this thing ever want to die? And imagine you're an Israelite and you were, it was just prancing around and now you have this, these leaves and you're painting its blood on your door. Like, you're very aware this costs something. This should be my blood and it's not and this thing is standing for me. And part of what's really hard about the Christian message is looking in the face of, of like the consequences of your own sin. That's really hard. And it's a reason why some of you guys choose like the Christianity light, like everything's just going to be fine, like God bless, it's going to be cool. Because you don't want to look at your own junk. And Jesus doesn't give us that option. He says, my blood is shed, it costs something. And some of you guys just reject it altogether because you don't want to deal with your own junk either. Uh, the new Cinderella is awesome while we're on it. And um, it's awesome because Kate Blanchett is the stepmother and she's amazing. And um, there's this great scene at the end. And she tells Cinderella, she says, nothing is ever given. You have to pay. Pay. And Cinderella, you know, she's beautiful. And she's like in her fierceness at this moment. You know. And, she, and she's like, that's not true. Kindness is free. Love is free. Right? The love of Jesus is free. And it's freely offered to you. Offered to everyone in this room. It's free to you, but it costs him everything. It costs God everything. For him to welcome you in to his love. It's a great expense. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't just have this easy Hallmark card sentiment. He doesn't allow for that. You're forced to deal with the heaviness of your sin and the brokenness of the world. But the lamb also, so then all my cynical, like defeated, like people in the room are like, yeah, that easy believism sucks. You can just get over here on like the cynical train with me when everything is the worst and that'd be fine. But Jesus doesn't allow for that either. Okay, the presence of the Lamb breaks down exclusivism. The presence of the Lamb breaks down easy believism. But the presence of the Lamb breaks down fear. And this is where, like, if you've been checked out, this is where I want you to come back with me. Because this is what I want you to hear tonight, no matter where you're coming from. The Lamb in this passage is hard evidence that God's love is real and true and actual and not just potential. That God isn't waiting on something from you in order to love you. Uh, dating is a very fearful thing, um, as you, most of you know. Um, and some of you guys are married and early on in marriage. And early marriage is a very fearful thing. Because romance, the way we do romance, is all built on suspense, right? Does he love me? Does he not? Is she going to text me back? I saw the little bubbles pop up and then they went away. And now it's been like five hours. Um, he has read receipts on. And I know that he's read it. I, I love having read receipts on because it drives you nuts. Because like he got my text yesterday and he hasn't texted me back. And it's like, I have a life, you know? Um, like I, I couldn't stop what I was doing. Like there was literally poop on my hand from a kid. And I, was, I saw your text and then I'll get back to you later. Um, but modern romance is built on potential love. There's this great uh, article that uh, Heather, Heather Haverleski wrote in New York Magazine, and it's called Ro- What Romance Really Means After Ten Years of Marriage. And uh, you should read it. It's great um, because it's really funny. And my wife and I, we texted back and forth about it, and it was really funny. But listen to what she says. She says, Our dumb culture tricks us into believing that romance is the suspense of not knowing whether someone loves you or not. 
The suspense of wanting to have sex, but not being able yet. The suspense of wanting all problems and puzzles to be solved by one person without knowing if they have any time or affinity for your particular puzzles yet. We think romance is a mystery in which you add up clues that you will be loved. Romance must be carefully staged and art-directed so everyone looks better than they usually do and seems sexier and better than they actually are so the suspense can remain intact. Do you, do you feel that? Like it's the suspense of, of wanting, are they going to love me? Are they going to like me? And God's love to you is not potential. It's not suspenseful. It's actual. It's real. It's solid. And it's true. And what drives dating is fighting against the possible breakup. Fighting against the feeling of knowing that they actually are going to reject you in the end. And you'd be tempted to think that about God. That you're waiting to find out whether he likes you or not. And he's waiting to find out whether you like him or not. Except for the lamb. The lamb doesn't let you think that. Because the, because the lamb is the absolute truth that God loves us. The terms of the relationship are not riding on you. They're riding on the lamb. When God comes to judge, look, look at verse 13. Look, flip over to your second sheet on the, and look at verse 13. And this is where we're going to hang out. We're going to bring this whole thing down for a landing on verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. God says, when I come to your door and I see the blood, not only will I will not judge you, I cannot judge you. The blood is already there. Uh, I watched The Martian with Sarah Jane the other day. It's a great movie if you haven't seen it. But one of the most fascinating things to me about space movies is how much time they spend going in and out of airlock doors. You know, like half the movie is like, you know, and the, and the other door, and then you go and you know. And in the Martian, it's especially too because he's on Mars and he's like trying to grow potatoes inside this like weird house. And then outside is Mars and like death. And if the airlock door ruptures, as it does in the movie actually, uh, everything in there, in, all the potatoes and everything die, right? Well, it's not really that important to me. You're welcome. <laughs> when it gets on Netflix, man, it's over. I'm not, I'm not even arguing about whether you've seen it or not. Um, but what the airlock doors do in space is everything outside is death and everything inside is life and organisms and, 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 and happiness and pressure, the right pressure. And faith is really all about the airlock. It's about whether that door can keep death out or not. So if you think about Matt Damon in The Martian behind the airlock, it doesn't really matter how he feels about the airlock. Or how much confidence he has in the airlock. What matters is whether the airlock can keep death out and life in. And that's what the blood on the door is. And that's what faith really looks like. Faith is not, listen, faith is not a feeling state. Wherein you just don't even feel anymore like you have doubts in Jesus. And you just are totally committed emotionally and you're all in. It's not that thing you're looking for in a boyfriend. Okay? Faith is not, a, is not an emotional state, nor is faith a place where you come and you purge your doubt of every po- of your mind of every possible doubt, and you just ab- ab- embrace the absurdity of Christianity and just take, take a leap of faith. Faith is standing behind the airlock door and saying, it's enough, I'm trusting it. Um, I was really helped in this by a sermon from a guy named Les Newsom, who was quoting this old dead Scottish guy named Horatius Bonner. And his point is this. Imagine with me 
that you're talking to this Israelite. They've killed this lamb. They put the blood on the door. Okay? And the Israelite is there, and he's asking him questions. He's all insecure about how well he had killed the lamb. Did he do it rightly? Did he do it at the right angle? He's taking no comfort in, in, in the blood on the door, but he's wondering, did I paint with the right kind of brush strokes? Did I put enough pressure? Did I put it thick enough on there? Did I really mean it when I painted the blood on the door? Should, and this is what Bonner says. Should you tell, not tell him that his actions concerning the lamb were not the lamb? Do, do you follow me? His actions concerning the lamb were not the lamb. Should you not tell him to be of good cheer? Not because he had painted the door in some super approved manner, but because the door was painted. Because the blood was on the door, however poorly painted, however imperfectly, and therefore said, let this lamb stand for me. he, He makes the point, it's not the quantity or the quality of your faith. It's the object, it's the lamb. So, some of y'all think that you aren't really in with God or you can't be in with God because you didn't grow up in the Christian thing. And you don't know the lingo. And you don't know the verbiage. And, and, and you can't speak the language. And you don't know the Bible like some others. And what I want you to hear tonight is God saying, when I see the blood, when I see the lamb, it's the lamb. It's not what you did concerning the lamb. And some of y'all think because you grew up in the church, and you haven't had this like life-changing experience that you're not really in. And what God wants to say to you tonight is, it's the lamb. When he sees the lamb, he will pass over. Some of y'all are, are struggling because you see a lot of hypocrisy in yourself and in the church. And you don't know where, you're, where you fit. And God's saying, when I see the blood, it's the lamb. Some of y'all think you don't have the right motives for being here in the first place. God's saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Some of you guys, and please listen to me. Some of you guys are so discouraged because you're not making the kind of progress that you want to be making. And you're thinking to yourself, how can I be doing these things and still be acceptable to God? And I want you to hear God saying, when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. It's the lamb. And some of y'all think that you can't be him because you don't feel it enough. You haven't mustered up the right kind of repentance. When God sees the blood of the Lamb, He will pass over. The presence of Jesus shows us there is nothing to fear. How can you know God loves you? It's the Lamb. How can you know that things are going to be okay? It's the Lamb. Let's look to Him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You that we can stand behind You secure that we are like an Israelite family standing inside our home and some of us are real sure that it's going to be okay and some of us are real doubtful. And some of us have walked a straight path and some of us has been real curvy. And yet, Lord, it is not the quantity of our faith nor is it the quality of our faith, but it is Jesus who secures our life with you. Thank you that you have made a way for us. Would you help us to trust you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.